0: All right, so our seminar today is called Twisting Tongues, and you can see the subtitle there, How the Charismatic Movement Redefines Biblical Terms to Justify Unbiblical Practice. So I want to talk just a little bit about what I'm intending to do in this seminar. Uh, When we think about spiritual gifts, there's a number of passages in Scripture that talk about spiritual gifts. Probably outside of the book of Acts, the three most familiar passages would be Romans chapter 12, really verses 3 through 7, and then 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, especially chapter 12 with its lists of the gifts, both at the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter, and then 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And in fact, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter gives us two designations for the gifts. He talks about speaking gifts and serving gifts. And really, that's a very helpful designation because it gives us some categories in which to think about spiritual gifts. And we might add a third category, what we would call the sign gifts or the spectacular or extraordinary gifts. So we have the sign gifts, the speaking gifts, and the serving gifts. Uh, last year, I did a seminar for Sundays in July on the gifts of the Spirit, where we talked about the speaking gifts and the serving gifts, gifts that pretty much everyone, whether you're on the charismatic side or the cessationist side of the conversation, everyone is in agreement that those gifts have continued to the present. Where there is controversy is with regard to the sign gifts or the extraordinary gifts, the miraculous and revelatory gifts. And specifically, the main gifts in that category would be the gift of apostleship, the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, and the gift or gifts, plural, of healing. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning is apostleship, prophecy, tongues, and healing healing. And what I'm attempting to show, I'll just kind of give my spoiler up front, but what I'm attempting to show is that the modern charismatic movement uses New Testament language of apostleship, prophecy, tongues, healing, but they have redefined the terms so that what's happening in modern charismatic churches doesn't actually match what was happening in the New Testament, okay? And I want to show you that actually by quoting fairly extensively from authors and theologians who would be on the pro-charismatic side of this conversation. All right, so that's where we're heading this morning, and again, I hope it will be clarifying for you because I think there is a lot of confusion both on the charismatic side and on the cessationist side, about what these terms mean. And when they're not defined properly, we tend to talk past each other on this important topic. We're going to start by defining some of our terms. Uh, First, the term continuationist. This will actually be the term that I primarily use throughout this lecture, and that is because... The term continuationist is the term that most conservative, meaning theologically conservative, evangelical charismatics use to describe themselves. So the charismatic movement obviously is a very broad movement. I have on my shelf in my office the International Dictionary of Pentecostal and Charismatic Movements, edited by Stanley Burgess, and in the introduction to that, he says that there are some 20,000 doctrinally distinct Charismatic groups in the world, and that represents roughly half a billion people. So the Charismatic Movement is incredibly vast. Today we're going to be primarily focused on the conservative evangelical slice of that broader Charismatic Movement... And we're going to be looking specifically at how they define these gifts. And they refer to themselves generally as continuationists. So we have the continuationists, those would be those who believe that the sign gifts have continued to the present. And that is set over against the cessationists, who would argue that the sign gifts were specifically for the apostolic age, and when the apostles passed away, and when the canon of Scripture was complete, that the sign gifts were no longer given because their purpose had been fulfilled. Okay, so continuationists and cessationists, which means I get to say a lot of syllables today because I'll be using those terms quite frequently. All right, so a continuationist is one who believes that all of the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 and 14, that all of those gifts have continued to the present, and therefore Christians should seek all of those gifts, including apostleship, prophecy, tongues, and gifts of healing. Uh, Sam Storms is a fairly well-known continuationist author. He's an evangelical theologian. And so he says this, "'When I speak of signs, wonders, and miracles or miraculous phenomena available to the church today, I have in mind not the mere potential for rare supernatural activity or surprising acts of providence,' but the actual operation of those miraculous gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So there you have a continuationist in his own words saying this is what it means to be a continuationist, that the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere in the New Testament, that those signed gifts have continued. Cessationism, as we already mentioned, is the view that... The sign gifts had a purpose which was fulfilled during the apostolic age, and because that purpose was fulfilled through the apostles, really culminating in the close of the canon of Scripture, that the sign gifts, the miraculous and revelatory gifts, are no longer necessary for the church today. And so we don't expect them, nor do we encourage Christians to pursue them. As I mentioned earlier, in this particular lecture, we're going to be looking at the four major sign gifts. That would be the gift of apostleship, the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, and the gift or gifts. And the reason I say or gifts is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul actually uses the plural there when he talks about gifts of healing. So apostleship, prophecy, tongues, and healing. So, let's dive right in with apostleship. When we look at the New Testament, what we find is that an apostle of Jesus Christ... Now, the word apostle, in Greek, it essentially means emissary or uh, ambassador, a representative. So, an apostle, could that term could be used generally to talk about somebody who was an emissary from one local church to another local church. But an apostle of Jesus Christ was a very specific title, a very specific designation, and it was given to a limited number of individuals. And this would include men like Peter and Paul. It's kind of like the English term ambassador, you could say that somebody's a goodwill ambassador on behalf of their local HOA, and people would go, okay, that's a lowercase a ambassador. But if somebody is the ambassador of the United States to a foreign nation, that takes on a completely different meaning. In the same sense, an apostle of Jesus Christ is a capital A kind of apostle, and that office and that gift came with very specific. Qualifications. It is this type of apostleship that the Apostle Paul references in places like 1 Corinthians 12, where he starts out his list by saying, first of all apostles... Uh, he starts out the list with apostleship in 1 Corinthians 12.29. First of all, apostles is actually a quote from Ephesians 4.11. But in Ephesians 2.20, in Ephesians chapter 3, in Ephesians 4.11, he's talking about capital A apostleship. And the same thing is true in 1 Corinthians 12. And that will become very important, as we'll see here in just a moment. Apostles of Jesus Christ had three qualifications. First... It was required that they were an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And you can see that in Acts chapter 1, when the 11 under Peter's leadership choose a replacement for Judas Iscariot. They looked for someone who was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, we see that the apostle Paul was also an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And actually, Paul says he was the last. He says, last of all, Jesus appeared to me. So, Paul was the last eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. A second qualification is that an apostle had to be appointed directly by the Lord Jesus. And then a third qualification is, An apostle had to be confirmed by miraculous signs, and we see this, for example, in places like 2 Corinthians, where Paul talks about the fact that the Corinthian church should have known that he was a true apostle because he confirmed his apostleship through the miraculous signs that he performed. Well, this is important because if we look at these three criteria, we can say with confidence that no one today, and in fact, no one since the death of the Apostle John around the year 100 A.D., no one meets these qualifications and therefore no one can be a capital A Apostle of Jesus Christ. And this is something that uh, is very, very significant. The Apostles, as this slide shows, did play a foundational role in the establishment of the church. Ephesians 2.20 even says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. But what I want to show you is that even continuationists agree that there are no apostles in the capital A, apostle of Jesus Christ sense. There are no apostles in the church today. So this is from Wayne Grudem. That's a name that perhaps you've heard before. He's a fairly well-known theologian, uh, an evangelical theologian, a brother in Christ, but he is on the other side of this issue. He's a continuationist. But notice what he says here. He says it seems that no apostles were appointed after Paul and certainly, since no one today can meet the, qual- the qualification of having seen the risen Christ with his own eyes, there are no apostles today. Then in another place, Grudem says this, "...no major leader in the history of the church, not Athanasius or Augustine, not Luther or Calvin, not Wesley or Whitfield, has taken to himself the title of apostle or let himself be called An apostle. If any in the modern time want to take the title apostle to themselves, they immediately raise the suspicion that they may be motivated by inappropriate pride and desires for self exaltation. Well, I think, even though I disagree with his continuationist position, I think Wayne Grudem is exactly right. In this case, he has acknowledged that the scriptural qualifications for apostleship mean that no one today can meet that qualification, and therefore no one today should claim to be an apostle. There are no more, uh, capital A, apostles of Jesus Christ. There have not been in church history since the death of the apostle John. Uh, D.A. Carson, uh, also a name that perhaps you recognize. Uh, Carson has written many good things, but again, he would be on the continuationist side of this debate. But you'll notice that he also acknowledges as long as apostles are understood to refer to a select group, meaning the Twelve plus Paul... There is a prima facie case for saying at least one of the charismata, the charismatic gifts, passes away at the end of the first generation. And then Adrian Warnock uh, was a, or is, a British charismatic blogger. But he uh, articulates things in a way that's helpful for understanding the continuationist position. He's also a pastor. He says this There are two foundational roles for apostles. Number one, in building foundations for the church universal, and number two, in building derivative foundations for individual churches. It is only that second sense that has continued. Now, this is an important slide because it shows you what continuationists do when they recognize that apostleship in the capital A, Apostle of Jesus Christ sense, has no longer continued. They create a second category of apostleship in order to argue, well, okay, yeah, it's true, that kind of apostleship is no longer Around, but we do have church planters, and we think of church planters as apostles. This is what, and I hope to show you this this morning, this is what the charismatic movement, the continuationist movement, is going to do with every one of these miraculous gifts, is they're going to acknowledge that the truly miraculous, supernatural, extraordinary gift has passed away, but there's this sort of analogous, derivative, lower or lesser category of that gift that they're going to argue has continued. So, sure, no Apostles, capital A, but church planters, missionaries, okay. We'll critique that more in here just a moment. Sam Waldron is a cessationist, so Sam Waldron would be in agreement with our position here at Grace Church. He says this, and he's talking about the implications of all of this for our understanding of passages like 1 Corinthians 12. There is at least one gift which we know for sure cannot be possessed in the church today, and that is the gift of being an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is at least one way the church today ought not to attempt to copy the church of the New Testament. And then Thomas Edgar, who's also a cessationist, says this, The fact that the gift of apostles ceased with the apostolic age is devastating. It's a devastating blow to the basic assumption underlying the entire charismatic perspective, namely that the assumption that all gifts are to be operative throughout the church age. And so it's interesting, right, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul talks about the charismata of the Holy Spirit, the charismatic gifts that the Holy Spirit gives out of His grace to the church. And in talking about those charismatic gifts, Paul lists those gifts And he includes apostleship at the beginning of his list of those gifts. And yet here we have continuationists acknowledging that that apostleship, because again, 1 Corinthians 12, the apostleship there refers to the capital A, apostle of Jesus Christ category, that apostleship, even the continuationists acknowledge, has ceased. As Edgar points out, this is a significant admission because it's an acknowledgment that even the continuationists agree that something in 1 Corinthians 12 has not continued to the present. Richard Gaffin, also a cessationist author, he says many continuationists are in fact cessationists in that they recognize That there are no apostles today. That awareness in turn implies the legitimacy of distinguishing between an apostolic and a post apostolic era in church history. Okay, so that's apostleship. Now let's talk a little bit about prophecy, the gift of prophecy. If we look in the scriptures, we find that a prophet, in order to be regarded as a true prophet, a prophet had to pass three tests, meaning that if someone heard someone say, I'm a prophet of the Lord and this is what the Lord says, that person listening could apply these three tests to know whether or not that person was truly a prophet of the Lord. The first of those tests is doctrinal orthodoxy. In other words, a true prophet, one who speaks for God, is going to speak things that are theologically accurate. He's going to give prophecy that accords with what God has previously revealed because as God's spokesman, which is what the word prophet means, spokesman, as God's spokesman, He cannot contradict that which God has already revealed. And you can see in a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 13, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God. So, again, a genuine, true, authentic spokesman for God is going to speak that which is truly from God and therefore that which is theologically accurate. A second test of a true spokesman for God is the test of moral integrity. This is not to say that prophets are always perfect. I know you can think of examples from both the Old and New Testament where those who were spokesmen for God sinned, but they do not continue in patterns of unrepentant sin. False prophets, by contrast, are characterized by unrepentant patterns of sin. And so here we have a passage from the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 2. "'But false prophets also arose among the people,' Just as there will be false teachers among you, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. You can see there an emphasis on sensuality, an emphasis on error, an emphasis on greed. And really, when you think about false prophets, what are the marks of a false prophet morally? They are almost always characterized by immorality and sensuality, by inaccuracy and error, and by the love of money and greed. So a false prophet is known by the fruit of his life. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, talks about how you will know them by their fruit. He's talking in that context about beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. You will know them by their deeds. But there's a third test, and this is the one I want to focus on this morning, and that's the test of revelatory accuracy. And what I mean by this is that a true prophet, when a true prophet says... This is what the Lord says, or thus says the Lord, or I have a word from the Lord for you. Whatever comes next in that quote from heaven has to be 100% accurate. Otherwise, that person is not a true prophet. Let me show you this from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Verses 20 to 22. The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name... So he's claiming to speak for the Lord, but he's presumptuous. Which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So God takes this really, really seriously. If you say you're a prophet and you're coming speaking in the name of the Lord... If you're doing that presumptuously, or if you're doing that in the name of false gods, God takes that very, very seriously. It's a serious thing. But look at what the Lord says. He says, You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? That's a great question. How do we know if somebody comes saying, I'm a prophet, this is what the Lord says? how do we know whether or not that person is truly a prophet or whether they're speaking presumptuously? Well, this text answers that question. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is a thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid So we can see that Scripture clearly lays out a standard of 100% accuracy when it comes to a prophet speaking divine or claiming to speak divine revelation. Thus says the Lord, whatever comes next has to be 100% accurate or otherwise you're not a true prophet. In spite of that very clear biblical standard... The modern charismatic and continuationist movement has essentially, not even essentially, completely ignored that standard of revelatory accuracy. Bill Haman is a charismatic prophet. Here's what he says. He says, "...we must not be quick to call someone a false prophet simply because something he said was inaccurate." Missing it a few times in prophecy does not make someone a false prophet. No mortal prophet is infallible. All are liable to make mistakes. Well, That doesn't sound like the standard from Deuteronomy. Here's Jack Deere. Jack Deere is a well-known continuationist author. He wrote a book that was quite popular back in the 1990s called Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. But here's what Jack Deere says. He says, prophets are really messy. Prophets make mistakes. He's not talking about biblical prophets. He's talking about modern charismatic prophets. And sometimes when a prophet makes a mistake, it's a serious mistake. I mean, I know prophets just last year that cost people millions of dollars with a mistake that they made. Here's Wayne Grudem again. And again, Wayne Grudem is a continuationist. He says there is almost uniform testimony from all sections of the charismatic movement that prophecy is imperfect and impure and will contain elements which are not to be obeyed or trusted. Well, what kind of prophecy is that? It's inaccurate and it's non authoritative. Sorry, my PowerPoint on my computer is a little slow sometimes. Did it go to the next slide? Yeah, there it is. (laughs) Wayne Grudem. Again, prophecy in the church age is not the Word of God and can frequently contain errors. And then in another place, prophecies in the church today should be considered merely human words, not God's words, and not equal to God's words in authority. Well, that's a very different definition of prophecy. If someone in the Old Testament, someone like Elijah or Elisha or Moses or any of the prophets was to come and say, I have a word from the Lord for you, that would be perfectly accurate, totally authoritative, and something that you could base your life and your eternity on. But from the modern charismatic perspective, modern prophecy is something entirely different. It's full of errors, and it's no more reliable than just, you know, human advice. Here's Sam Storms, again, continuationist. One should avoid looking to or depending on the gift of prophecy for making routine daily decisions in life. God does not intend for the gift of prophecy to be used as the usual way we make decisions regarding His will. So if someone comes to you and says, Hey, I have a word from the Lord for you, according to Sam Storms and Wayne Grudem, you should take that with a big, big grain of salt. Here's Wayne Grudem again. Because the question is, well, if you don't know whether or not it's true, and you don't know if you should follow it, then how do you decide? How do you discern that? Grudem says this, he's talking about how Charismatics should sort of evaluate modern prophecy. He says, pastorally, if someone is in charge of a home fellowship group, or if a pastor is in charge of a prayer meeting, you call it as you see it. In other words, if somebody's prophesying, you as the pastor, or you as a group of elders, you have to make a judgment call. You call it as you see it. Uh, This was from an interview he did in Britain, which makes sense of the next sentence. I have to use an American analogy. It's like an umpire calling balls and strikes as the pitcher pitches the ball across the plate. So it's entirely subjective. It's not objective truth from God. Instead, it's subjective truth that might contain errors that you might want to listen to, but you shouldn't base your daily decisions on it, but it is a word from the Lord. All right, so what the modern continuationist movement has done, much like apostleship, it's created two categories of prophecy. They claim that there's a first or higher level of prophecy, and that includes the Old Testament prophets and the apostles and any of the writers of Scripture. And they had to adhere to the standard of Deuteronomy 18. But they claim there's a second lower level of prophecy, what they call congregational or New Testament prophecy, and this prophecy does not have to be held to the standard of Deuteronomy 18. It can contain many errors and is not something that is actually binding on a believer's conscience. In fact, many charismatics view prophecy in terms of how much faith the prophet has Will determine the accuracy of the prophecy itself. So if you have 50% faith, you'll probably have a 50% accuracy rate in your prophecies. When Grudem, speaking of prophecy, says, I would put it, he, he defines prophecy as God bringing something to mind. And he says, I would put this idea of God bringing something to mind in the same category of authority as advice or counsel. From a godly person. Well, you can see how this is very confusing for your average churchgoer, somebody who doesn't understand all of this nuance. They just hear, hey, somebody is a prophet, they have a word of prophecy, they have a word from the Lord, and when they hear that, they associate with that a higher level of authority because obviously. They associate anything that comes from God or claims to come from God with a higher level of authority. This can lead to obvious abuses in the church. Kim Crutchfield, another charismatic, says this, abusive church leaders use prophecies to castigate, vilify, and place fear in a person's heart. These are false prophecies uttered as a tool of social control. They Predict doom for those who leave a church. This is a clear abuse of spiritual authority. And then he goes on, "...unscrupulous leaders often use prophecies and words from the Lord to manipulate their flock. It is a crass form of spiritual manipulation. It leaves people vulnerable to the whims and manipulations of would-be prophets." So you can see how this confusion can lead to really severe manipulation within a congregation. Uh, In fact, I remember hearing a story of a very well-known evangelical pastor who's on the continuationist side of this discussion, and he told the story that one day, when this was years ago, his wife was pregnant— And one day, a woman in their church came up to him after he was done preaching, and she said, I'm a prophet, and I have a word from the Lord from you. This is a harsh word from the Lord. Your wife is going to give birth to a daughter, and she's going to die shortly after the daughter is born. And uh, I don't remember the specifics, if it was just the baby that was going to die or if his wife was also going to die, but that was the prophecy that he was given. And he said he went back to his office having heard that, and he just wept. And I'm thinking, wow, this misidentification of true prophecy, it leads to this kind of just emotional agony. Uh, And as he told the story, he went on to say, so when my wife gave birth to a boy and not a girl... He says, "I went out and gave a big whoop because I knew that the prophecy wasn't true." And I'm thinking, you didn't have to wait till <laughs> you didn't have to wait until your child was born to know that that woman was not a true prophet." So that's just an illustration of how redefining prophecy, but still retaining the label, can create confusion and manipulation within the church. So, the implications of this, right, redefining prophecy as merely human words and not God's words, is a tacit acknowledgement that God is no longer speaking today as He did in the past. And again, the continuationists will admit that the authoritative, infallible, error-free, direct revelation from God, yeah, that that's all past. because that had to be held to a standard of perfect accuracy. What we're doing today is just God bringing us impressions and we're doing our best to kind of figure it out, but we're sinful, so we mess it up. And, you know, we say things that end up not being true, but that doesn't make us false prophets. It just means that we're, you know, imperfect people. And my response to that is, but that's not biblical prophecy. That's not the gift of prophecy. Okay, let's talk a little bit then about the gift of tongues. So we've seen apostleship, we've seen prophecy. Now the gift of tongues. Very very simply, the gift of tongues. From the word tongues comes from a Greek word meaning glow or a Greek word "glossa," which can refer either to the physical tongue in your mouth or it can refer to a spoken language. It really is best translated, the gift of tongues, as the gift of languages. And the clearest passage of Scripture that tells us about the gift of tongues is Acts chapter 2 with regard to the day of Pentecost, where the 120 who were gathered in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came and indwelt them, it says that they went out throughout Jerusalem and they began to speak with other tongues. And Luke actually lists, I think it's 16 different dialects that they would have spoken on the day of Pentecost. These are dialects and language groups that represented the broader region where Jews from all across the diaspora would have come back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And so they heard the language of the place where they lived outside of Israel being spoken by a bunch of Galileans. And it was an amazing miracle, right? I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if you could all of a sudden learn a foreign language Without actually or know a foreign language without actually having to learn it. I mean, that would be incredible. Way better than even Google Translate, right? But, but that's the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is the gift of languages. Let me show you from Wayne Grudem. I know I'm quoting quite a bit from Grudem, but he's probably one of the most well-known continuationists. But look at what he says. He says he agrees with what I just said. He says it should be said at the outset that the Greek word glossa, we get our word glossary and other things from that. A Greek word glossa, translated tongue, is not used only to mean the physical tongue in a person's mouth, but also to mean languages in the New Testament passages where speaking in tongues is discussed. The meaning languages is certainly in view. Oh, yeah, the is certainly in view in those passages. And then he continues, "...it is unfortunate, therefore, that English translations have continued in the use of the phrase speaking in tongues, which is an expression not otherwise used in ordinary English, and which gives the impression of a strange experience, something completely foreign to ordinary human life." In fact, the only translation of the New Testament, English translation of the New Testament, that I'm aware of that translates tongues as languages in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is the Holman Christian Standard Version, the HCSB. You can find it online at places like Bible Gateway. And if you're reading through 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, I'd encourage you to look it up in the Holman Christian Standard because it makes the text way less obscure when the gift of tongues is translated as Grudem, and I would agree, says it should be as the gift of languages. I mean, really, the reason tongue is used is because in the 16th century, uh, I guess early 17th century, 1611, when the King James Version of the Bible was first translated, people used the word tongue as a normal synonym for language. In fact, the, uh, the title page for the King James Version inside the front cover says the translation of the Bible in the English tongue. So it was used as a common synonym for language, but over time, translations have just retained the word tongue for various reasons, and the result of that is that it's obscured the meaning of what this gift was. This gift was the ability to speak a language supernaturally a language that you never went to school to learn. And that, of course, made it an amazing miracle. Uh, Throughout church history, if we go back even to some of the early church fathers, we see that they agree that this is what the gift of tongues was. It was the gift of languages. So Gregory of Nazianzus, a 4th century church father, says of the apostles on the day of Pentecost, they spoke with foreign tongues and not those of their native land. And the wonder was great, a language spoken by those who had not learned it. John Chrysostom, late 4th, early 5th century church father, commenting on 1 Corinthians 14, says, And as in the time of the building of the Tower of Babel, the one tongue was divided into many, so then the many tongues frequently met in one man. And the gift was called the gift of tongues because... That man, that gifted person, could all at once speak diverse languages. Then we have Augustine, uh, the major church father of the 5th century in the West. In the earliest times, the Holy Ghost fell upon them that believed, and they spoke with tongues which they had not learned. For it was necessary for there to be this sign of the Holy Spirit in all tongues to show that the gospel of God was to run through all tongues over the whole earth. So the, the common understanding of church history was that the gift of tongues was the gift of languages. And as you see even there from those early church fathers, the gift of tongues was the undoing of the Tower of Babel. And it was a sign to unbelievers, both to Jews as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, and also to those Gentiles who spoke that language to hear the mighty works of God described and declared in their own native tongue. An amazing gift. And, I mean, listen, I wish the gift of tongues was still in operation because wouldn't that be amazing if you didn't have to go to language school to become fluent in a foreign language? Uh, John Calvin, not a church father, but rather a 16th century reformer, he says this, those endowed, or excuse me, these endowments, meaning the gift of tongues, and he's also in this context talking about the gift of translation or interpretation. The gift of tongues, those who had those gifts, they did not at that time acquire them by labor or study, but were put in possession of them by a wonderful revelation of the Holy Spirit. Now, we fast forward then, so for from really from the post-apostolic age through the Church Fathers all the way through the Reformation, for 18, 19 centuries of Church history, everybody has understood that the gift of tongues is the gift of foreign languages. That brings us to the early 20th century and to a Wesleyan holiness minister named Charles Parham. Charles Parham, Charles Fox Parham, was sort of a traveling... He had a traveling Bible school. He would set up a Bible institute in certain places and teach people, and then he would move on to another location. In 1901, he was in Topeka, Kansas. So in uh, 1900, he set up this Bible institute, and he had students there. And it was there that he... um, (coughs) really based on some theology that goes all the way back to John Wesley, he was teaching his students that after conversion, they could experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the second blessing. And he was the one who said, maybe that second blessing is supposed to be accompanied by the same sign gifts that we read about in the book of Acts. And that's what he taught his students. And so he encouraged them to pray for the same kinds of gifts that took place among the apostles in Acts chapter 2 and elsewhere throughout the book of Acts. Uh, The movement that came out of that is called the Pentecostal movement. And the reason it's called the Pentecostal movement is because speaking in tongues was the primary gift that identified Pentecostals, and they associated that gift with Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. That's why they're called that. Well, what's interesting is on January 1st, 1901, some of his students began speaking in tongues. Uh, The first was a woman named Agnes Osman, and she began speaking in tongues. What's really interesting about that is in the weeks and months and even the years that followed that, Charles Parham, Agnes Osman, and other members of what was called the Apostolic Faith Movement, again, sort of the the forerunner to the Pentecostal movement, they they claimed that what they were doing was speaking in actual foreign languages. So even the original Pentecostals believed that the gift of tongues was real foreign languages. Agnes Osman, for example, claimed that she was speaking in Chinese when she was speaking in tongues on January 1st, 1901. And I want to show you that from Charles Parham. Here's Charles Parham in the Topeka State Journal in 1901. He says, The Lord will give us the power of speech to talk to the people of the various nations without having to study those languages in schools. Right? Amazing. Uh, And then in the Kansas City Times, just a little bit later in January of 1901, a part of our labor will be to teach a part of our labor will be to teach the church the uselessness of spending years of time preparing missionaries for work in foreign lands when all they have to do is ask God for power, right? You don't have to go to language school anymore. Um, here he is in the Hawaiian Gazette. This is a few months later, also in 1901. If they are worthy and seek it in faith, believing they will thus be made able to talk to the people whom they choose to work among their own language, which will, of course, be an inestimable advantage. And then he actually lists some of these. The students of Bethel College do not need to study in the old way to learn the languages. They have them conferred upon them miraculously, being able to converse with Spaniards and Italians and Bohemians and Hungarians and Germans and French in their own language. So he was insistent that the gift of tongues, which he claimed was recovered January 1st, 1901, that's what all charismatics believe, that that gift of tongues was the ability to speak real human foreign languages. The problem was that when missionaries who believed that were sent out, they found out the hard way that they didn't actually have the ability to speak those foreign languages. So here's Jack Hayford. If that name is familiar to you, he was the former pastor of Church on the Way, a charismatic church. And David Moore, so these are continuationist authors. And they say, yeah, sadly... The idea of xenoglossalelic, it's a fun word, xeno meaning foreign, glossa meaning speaking uh, tongues, and laleo meaning to speak, so speaking in foreign tongues. Uh, The idea of that would later prove an embarrassing failure as Pentecostal workers went off to the mission fields with their gift of tongues and found that their hearers did not understand them. (laughs) So they thought it was real languages, but... Obviously, here's Robert Anderson, a historian. He says, S.C. Todd of the Bible Missionary Society investigated 18 Pentecostals who went to Japan, China, and to India expecting to preach to the natives in those countries in their own tongue, and they found that by their own admission in no single instance have they been able to do so. Here is a picture of Charles Parham. Uh, here 's a picture of Agnes Osmond. This is quite a bit later in her life than when she spoke in tongues but here 's what 's fascinating is not only did the early Pentecostals speak in tongues, they also participated in writing in tongues, uh, sometimes called automatic writing it 's the idea of they don 't practice this anymore, but early on it was the idea of clearing your mind and just letting again, from their perspective, the Holy Spirit take over, and then whatever gets put on the paper is supposedly in a foreign language. So this is Agnes Osmond. She did some writing in Chinese, and it was published in local papers. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to know Chinese to know that that is not Chinese. and I share this with you because I want to show you the disconnect between what these early Pentecostals were claiming and what they were actually experiencing. So D.A. Carson, again a continuationist, he says modern tongues are lexically, uh, are lexically uncommunicative and the few instances of reported modern xenoglossia in speaking in foreign languages are so poorly attested that no weight can be laid on them. In other words, he's admitting, yeah, no one today speaks in a genuine human foreign language when they speak in tongues. So here's the thing. The modern Pentecostal movement at its very beginning was faced with a dilemma. Theologically, they believed from Acts chapter 2 that speaking in tongues was speaking in real foreign languages. But experientially, they were not able to speak in real foreign languages. So, what do you do? Do you submit your experience to the Scripture and say, I guess we're not speaking in tongues? Or do you submit Scripture to your experience and say, we have to reinterpret the Bible in order to fit our experience? Well, they chose the latter and came up with the theologically innovative perspective that there are two kinds of speaking in tongues. There is the real foreign language kind, like the apostles on the day of Pentecost, and then there is the Non-human foreign language, devotional prayer speech. Sometimes they'll call it the tongues of angels. Yeah, it's it's not a real foreign language, but they still claim that it is authentically speaking in tongues. William Samarin was a researcher at the University of Toronto. He was a linguist and he did his Dissertation. I believe it was a dissertation, uh, it was a significant in-depth study of modern glossolalia. Glossolalia, again, is a fancy term for speaking in tongues. And uh, he concluded this after studying many, many, many examples of modern glossolalia. Glossolalia consists of strings of meaningless syllables made up of sounds taken from those familiar to the speaker and put together more or less haphazardly. It is language-like because the speaker unconsciously wants it to be language-like. Yet, in spite of superficial similarities, glossolalia fundamentally is not language. So, the key question then is, does the gift of tongues produce authentic human foreign languages? That would be the cessationist perspective... That's what we see in Acts chapter 2. Or, as the continuationists claim, does it include something beyond human language? Does it include private, personal, devotional utterances that don't correspond to any known language, nor do they have the features of language? Adrian Warnock, again, our continuationist pastor and blogger, He says, there are different kinds of tongues. I think it is fair to say that the tongues of 1 Corinthians are different from those of Acts 2. It is at least possible that at different points in the passage in 1 Corinthians 12-14, to Paul is talking about different forms of tongues. And this is the typical continuationist response. Well, there's different kinds of tongues. So, for 1,900 years of church history, the tongues of Acts 2... Acts 10, Acts 19, 1 Corinthians 12, and 14 were all viewed as identical in terms of the core nature of the gift. But suddenly in the 20th century, ah, we think they're different because we can make 1 Corinthians sound more like what we experience, and we clearly are not experiencing what happened on the day of Pentecost, even though we call ourselves Pentecostals. Uh, now, just I probably should just make this note. I realize this is outside of where I'm intending to go today, but um, it is interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul does say that to another the Holy Spirit gives various kinds of tongues. And the word for kinds is genos. It's the word from which we get things like genealogy or genetics. What's interesting about that, because the Charismatic will say, see, Paul says there's different kinds of tongues. But Paul uses the exact same expression in chapter 14, verse 10, when he says there are different kinds of sounds. He uses phonos there instead of glosa, but different kinds of sounds or languages in the world. When Paul says there are different kinds of languages, he doesn't mean there are human languages and then there are non-human languages, What he means is there are different kinds of human languages. We just read some of them in Charles Fox Parham's interview with the Hawaiian Gazette, right? There's Spanish and German and uh, Czech, Chinese, right? There's different kinds of languages. That's what Paul means. He doesn't mean that there there is room for language and non-language within what the gift of tongues entails. All right, Sam Storms. Storms uh, is also, again, one of these uh, promoters, advocates of the continuationist position. And he's going to argue that the only place in Scripture where foreign language tongues is found is Acts chapter 2, and he finds ground for his continuationist second-level version of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Uh, One thing that I think is... Really interesting is what you're seeing, and I'll make this point again later, but what you're seeing is that the modern continuationist has to come up with a category that really is not a supernatural or extraordinary gift at all. Modern psychology can explain why somebody would talk in meaningless syllables. Honestly, false religions, some false religions, in fact there's a group in India, Hindu sect, that speaks in tongues and sounds very much like modern charismatics. It's not a supernatural phenomenon at all. That's very different than the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2, where the Galilean apostles were speaking fluently in foreign languages they had never gone to school to learn. That's a miracle, and that's the difference. Um, Here's D.A. Carson, and again, I I love D.A. Carson. I have a great respect for him. He's written many good things. This I don't find to be very helpful other than it expresses what I think is the conundrum of the continuationist position. And again, he is a continuationist, but he says this. He says, suppose the message is, and he's explaining how modern tongues could work. Suppose the message is, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Remove the vowels to achieve that string of syllables. This may seem a bit strange, but when we remember that modern Hebrew is written without any vowels, we can imagine that the pra- or that with practice this could be read quite easily. Now, remove the spaces and beginning with the first letter, rewrite the sequence using every third letter, and repeatedly go through the sequence in the letters or until all the letters are used up. And so then the result is that, and I'm not going to try to read that. <laughs> Now, add an A sound after each consonant and break up the unit into arbitrary bits. I'm a little afraid to read this because I know it's being recorded and it may be used against me at some point. <laughs> but, Patara Rama Nasavahara Dahara Dafarasa Fasa Karara. Carson says this. I think that this is indistinguishable from transcriptions of certain modern tongues. Certainly it is very similar to some I have heard. But the important point is that it conveys information provided you know the code. Anyone who knows the steps I have taken could reverse them in order to retrieve the original message. It appears then that tongues may bear cognitive information even though they are not a known Human language. Well that's a very creative, it's a very creative attempt to turn something that's clearly not a language into something that could contain cognitive information. Um, but that's not what the gift of tongues was in the New Testament. The gift of tongues was the ability to speak. A foreign language you had never gone to school to learn. The supernatural, miraculous ability to do that. And along with that gift was the gift of interpretation. The Greek word that's used there is hermeneuo, hermeneuo, from which we get hermeneutics. It means a precise understanding of the message, it is a synonym for translation or, or to translate. In the same way that you would have an interpreter at the United Nations who translates the message, an interpreter in the New Testament was one who heard that being spoken and could speak it in a language everybody understood. Unfortunately, the modern continuationist movement has turned the gift of interpretation into a subjective thing. Kind of like when you go to a museum and you see art and you go, well, my interpretation of that piece is this. And you go, oh, wow, that's lovely. My interpretation is entirely different. Well, isn't that great? We all have valid interpretations. We're so postmodern. That's that's how the continuationist movement uses tongues because it's not real language. And then interpretation, you get to make up whatever interpretation you feel led to communicate because it is entirely subjective. Okay, but as you can see, even the modern continuationists acknowledge that what's happening today in charismatic churches is not what was happening in Acts 2. Acts 2 was real languages. For all of church history, the church fathers, the Reformers, everybody said gift of tongues is real language. Even the original Pentecostals thought the gift of tongues was real language. It wasn't until they discovered that what they were doing was not real language that they had to come up with a creative explanation. So continuationists want to redefine tongues to include mindless babble and linguistic nonsense. I do think Matthew 6-7 is an important verse in this regard where Jesus says, do not pray using vain repetition. They admit that what happened in Acts 2 is not happening today. Okay, that brings us to our fourth and final category, the category of healing. In the New Testament, when we look at the examples of healing in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, we see several characteristics of the true gift of healing. Number one, we see that New Testament healings did not depend on the faith of the recipient. You have many times where Jesus healed people who did not or could not believe. Also in the book of Acts, not only did Jesus do this, but Peter and Paul each raised somebody from the dead. Uh, Paul raised Tabitha from the dead. Excuse me, Peter raised Tabitha from the dead. Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. In neither of those cases could the dead person exhibit faith, which is just a clear example of the fact that New Testament healings did not depend on the faith of the recipient. We see, secondly, that they were complete And permanent. When Jesus healed somebody, they were completely healed. And there wasn't a reversion back to their former condition. It was a permanent healing. Thirdly, New Testament's healings were undeniable. When the Pharisees who hated Jesus, when they sought to undermine His miracles, they didn't deny that Jesus healed people. They couldn't. What they denied was the power by which He accomplished those miracles. Then number four, they were immediate. Uh, every healing in the New Testament took place immediately. There's just a couple of times where Jesus healed people in two stages in order to make a theological point, but there was never this long period of, well, eventually maybe they'll recover. It was an immediate healing. And then finally, they were not prearranged. Jesus didn't uh, have a you know a big arena filled with... Uh, helpers who were screening people to decide who was going to get up on stage and who wasn't. Now, in the broader charismatic world, you do have faith healers who claim that they're doing what Jesus did and everybody knows that they're they're frauds, right? There's been plenty of exposés on faith healers to demonstrate that their claims are totally false and that they really are just false teachers. But when it comes to conservative evangelical continuationists and healing, they generally distance themselves from faith healers. And instead, they acknowledge that there was something unique about the healing ministry of Jesus and the apostles. And therefore, you shouldn't expect that kind of healing today. When somebody has the gift of healing, well, it's more akin to praying for somebody who is sick and then trusting the Lord to see whether or not God's going to answer that prayer by eventually healing that person over time. So our key questions, is that kind of healing, the healing of Jesus and the apostles, is that still happening today? Or are healing ministries are those healing ministries of Jesus and the apostles unique to the first century? And the answer is they're obviously unique to the first century. Uh, Here's Pastor John Piper. I know he's well-known at our church, and we love him, but he is on the continuationist side of this conversation, and he says this about the healing ministries of Christ. He says, "'It seems to me, both biblically and experientially, that there was an extraordinary outpouring of supernatural blessings surrounding the Incarnation, which has not been duplicated at any point in history.'" Nobody has ever healed like Jesus healed. He never failed. He did it perfectly. He raised people from the dead. He touched, and all sores went away, and he never blew it. So there's a continuationist saying, yeah, Jesus' healing ministry was unique, and I think by extension you could include the apostles in the book of Acts in that. Paul Stevens and Michael Green, continuationist authors, Say, Jesus had no failures. He had a no-failure rate and no reversions afterwards. All Christian healers experience both. That means modern Christian healers. His healings seem to have been complete and instantaneous. Healing by the church, uh, healings by the church today are not like that, unfortunately. Often there is delay and often there is failure. Here's Jack Deere, again a continuationist author. He says, It is wrong to insist that the apostolic ministry of signs and wonders is the standard for the gifts of healing given to average New Testament Christians. It is simply not reasonable to insist that all the miraculous spiritual gifts or that all miraculous spiritual gifts equal those of the apostles in their intensity or strength, in order to be perceived as legitimate gifts of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, he's acknowledging that what was happening in the Gospels and in Acts with regard to the healing of Jesus and the apostles, yeah, that's not what's happening today, and it's unfair to say that it should still be happening today. All right, let my iPad catch up here. All right, Sam Storms. When asked to pray, again, a continuationist, when asked to pray for the sick, people are often to heard to respond with, I can't, I don't have the gift of healing. Then Storm says, but if my reading of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 is correct, there is no such thing as the gift of healing, especially if it is envisioned as a God-given ability to heal everyone of every disease on every occasion. Rather, the Spirit... Sovereignly distributes a charisma or a gift of healing for a particular occasion, even though previous prayers for physical restoration under similar circumstances may not have been answered, and even though subsequent prayers for the same uh, affliction may not be answered. So in other words, Storms is saying, well, yeah, the gift of healing, it's not like what Jesus and the apostles did. It's you pray for somebody and God answers that prayer. R.D. Turnbull, the healing of the New Testament, the healings of the New Testament were of a different order than contemporary practice. They were sudden, dramatic, and extraordinary. They involved raising from the dead, restoring sight, curing lameness, and so on. Although some Christians or some charismatic and Pentecostal Christians make similar claims today, Mainstream evangelical spirituality, including charismatic evangelicals who advocate and practice healing ministries, would advise prudence in any direct association between apostolic healing and contemporary practice. So continuationists admit that apostolic quality healings are no longer happening. Instead, they redefine the gift of healing in terms of praying for the sick. And I would just say, real quickly as a footnote, that praying for the sick is wonderful. Of course we should pray for the sick. And does God sometimes heal the sick in ways that are extraordinary or at least seem extraordinary to us? The answer is yes. What we're simply saying is that that's not the gift of healing. That's not the gift of healing that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, nor is it the gift of healing that we read about on the pages of the Gospels and the book of Acts. Okay, you guys have hung with me. This is, thank you. I know it's a lot of data, but I'm trying to make a point. So the conclusion, what are we to make of all of this? So the continuationist wants to say that the sign gifts have continued. That's what it means to be a continuationist. The charismatic wants to say that all of the charismata, that means gifts of grace, all of the charismata have continued throughout all of church history, or that they came back, some of them would say, in the 20th century, but they're all available today. That's what it means to be a charismatic. That's what it means to be a continuationist. My question is, based on the reading of many continuationist scholars, what is it that has actually continued? Well, remember, for each of these gifts, they are going to have two tiers, So there's the capital A Apostle of Jesus Christ. That's tier one apostleship. And then there either are no apostles today or there's church planters and missionaries, and we call them apostles, but it's a lowercase a kind of apostleship. Uh, Okay, then prophecy. Well, there is authoritative, inerrant prophecy from the Lord. It's the quality of Scripture. It never fails, and you have to obey it. And then there is, well, you know, spiritual advice, like, you know, this is what I think the Lord wants me to say to you, but listen, it might have errors, I might get it wrong, and you don't have to listen to it if you don't want to, okay? Uh, then there are tongues, right? So there's tier one tongues, Acts 2, apostles speaking in foreign languages on the day of Pentecost. It's amazing. It's a miracle. Suddenly, I can speak fluent Chinese. Amazing. I can't do that, by the way. Or, tier two, uh, speaking in a private prayer language that if we were to record it and send it to a linguist, they would define as gibberish. Okay? Uh, Well, what about healing? Well, you have the miraculous healings of Jesus and the apostles, the only examples of gifts of healing in the entire New Testament. And uh, then you have either your faith healers, who are clearly frauds, or you have what most evangelical continuationists would say, praying for the sick and trusting the Lord to heal them in His time. Okay, so these are the two tiers. Well, as a cessationist... I'm going to look at tier 1 and say those are the actual those are the actual gifts, right? Those are the actual gifts. I'm going to look at two, tier 2 and I'm going to say those are not the actual gifts. What's interesting is that the continuationists they essentially agree, right? If you were to ask a continuationist, he would admit that tier 1 apostleship has ceased. He's going to admit that tier one prophecy has ceased. He's going to admit that tongues that are real languages, yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. And he's going to admit that miracles like what Jesus and the apostles did when they healed people, yeah, that, that was a first century thing. My point is this, that the continuationists are really cessationists. They're using the language of apostleship, prophecy, tongues, healing, but they've redefined the terms to refer to church planters, spirit-led advice, speaking in nonsense, and praying for the sick. Now, I'm a fan of church planters, but I don't think we should call them apostles. I'm happy for you to give me your advice. Just don't tell me that it's a word from the Lord. I don't want you to speak in gibberish. I'll just leave that at that. (laughs) And I'm happy for you to pray for me when I'm sick. But that's not the miraculous gifts of the New Testament. That's just living life as a faithful Christian in the body of Christ. Wayne Grudem says this, again, continuationist, another objection to so the continuation of miracles today is to say that the alleged miracles today are not, the, are not like the miracles in Scripture. That's what I just said. Because they all are far weaker and often are only partially effective. Well, I don't think it's really a miracle anymore if it's weak and ineffective, but in any case, he goes on to say, I'm waiting for my screen to catch up. My tablet is as tired as you guys are. Here it is. He says In response to this objection, we must ask whether it really matters whether the miracles today are exactly as powerful as those that occurred at the time of the New Testament. I do think it matters. I think it really matters. And as a cessationist, the reason I care about these things and the reason you should care about these things is because, really, for two reasons. Number one, when you allow cheap substitutes using the same labels to be practiced in the church today, it dishonors the genuine artifact of what the Spirit was doing in the first century. He was really healing people. He was giving new revelation from God. He was allowing people to speak in foreign languages they never learned. He was appointing apostles of Jesus Christ. That's miraculous, extraordinary, and unique, and it dishonors the true work of the Spirit to say, well, we're going to use the same labels, and we're going to claim to do the same things, but in reality, we're not doing the same things. We're doing something that honestly is a very poor substitute. And secondly, it matters because there are millions and millions of people, half a billion people, who are convinced that what they're doing is the same thing as what they read about in the book of Acts. And the reality is what they're doing has nothing in common with what was happening in the book of Acts. All right, I just have a couple more slides. Thomas Edgar, he's a cessationist. He says, Responsible charismatics are conceding that the apostolic gifts and the power exhibited in the book of Acts did cease with the apostolic age, and that those things are not seen today. They have conceded the basic cessationist argument. The charismatic movement gained credence and initial acceptance by claiming their gifts were the same as those in Acts. For most people, this is why they are viewed as credible today, Yet now, one of their primary defenses is the claim that they are not the same. And so Edgar concludes, faced with the facts, they have had to revoke the very foundation of their original reason for existence. What is Pentecostalism if it has nothing in common with Pentecost? Well, that's my last slide, And I hope it was helpful, but I really think that as we close our time, it's appropriate to pray for those who are part of a movement that, again, is confused on these things. We can pray that the Spirit will be honored and that He'll bring clarity as they continue to search His Word and live in light of it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pray for those who have been influenced by a movement that uses biblical terms but redefines them in ways that are unbiblical. And Lord, we know that even in the New Testament, the Corinthian church was confused about the gifts, and certainly the names of the men who I read from today, men like Wayne Grudem and D.A. Carson and others, these are our brothers in Christ. The Charismatic movement is vast, and there are some who are false teachers, but there are others who are true believers, and yet, I think, confused on this important issue. And so, Lord, we do pray that through the illuminating work of Your Holy Spirit as they study the truth of Your Word, that You would bring them to a more accurate understanding of this important issue because it does relate to the glory and honor of what you were doing in the first century, and it also relates to the practical Christianity of how believers are to live out their faith today. Lord, may we rejoice in the sufficiency of your Scripture, in the work of your Spirit who sanctifies us through its truth, and in the person of your Son to whom the Spirit points. We pray all these things in his name and for his honor. Amen.